Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. In chapter 13 of my book, Expat Secrets, I talk about the importance of studying a second language and living overseas for the last 20 years has shown me that English is not always enough. I think if I didn't speak Spanish when I was hitchhiking and backpacking through Latin America for 18 months, I literally would have gone hungry some nights. And if I didn't have basic understanding of Chinese, I never would have been able to navigate the subway systems and get to the places I need to go. But when I started learning languages, all we had were some pocket dictionaries and maybe some cassette tapes that you put in the car. Otherwise, your best bet was some expensive one-on-one lessons. Today, with online learning, the possibilities are almost endless. Actually, so much so that it's hard to know which courses to take. Well, I have gone through many language courses, and by far my favorite was created by Ollie Richards at I Will Teach You a Language. I enjoyed his work so much, I reached out to him to be a guest on the show, and we have now become fast friends. My wife now makes fun of me and asks me how my bromance is going. (laughs) Ollie was nice enough to offer a special deal to listeners of the Expat Money Show for his courses on language learning. So to knock $100 off your beginner level courses, I want you to go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash Spanish for the Spanish language, expatmoneyshow.com forward slash Italian for the Italian language courses, and expatmoneyshow.com forward slash French for the French language courses. My family and I are currently taking the Spanish course, and it is awesome. If you want to join the same course that I'm on, then just go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash Spanish and claim your $100 off the cover price. Okay, let's do this. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show, and today's guest has a Master's of Law in International Tax Law. His work has been featured in well-known media outlets, including The Washington Post, ABC News, The New York Times, Bloomberg News, Business Week, and Forbes. Fans of his work include former U.S. Congressman Ron Paul and Bob Bauman, as well as famed analyst Gary North and Dr. Mark Skousen. He has been able to help more than 15 thousand customers and clients protect their assets, protect themselves, and live more free lives. Please welcome to the show, Mark Nesman. Mark, how are you doing? Hey, Mikkel, I'm doing great. Uh, Thanks for having me today. My pleasure. So Mark, why don't you take a couple of minutes and kind of explain to us, how did you get into this type of work? Well, what happened is uh, I've been a writer uh, my entire career. Um, and I actually started out as a contract writer for Congressman Ron Paul and then uh, for Gary North. Uh, and Dr. North asked me to write a book um, back in, I guess, 1988. It was, um, we were struggling with a name for it, but we finally came up with a, a title of How to Achieve Personal and Financial Privacy in the Public Age. Um, Gary did a couple mailings to his list. We sold a few hundred copies of it, and of course, I was thrilled. But the real, my real breakthrough came when uh, I got a, a letter from Ron Paul, uh, who was current. He was had he had been in Congress, and then he was out of Congress. I guess he was looking for things to do. He had a newsletter um, called, I think, the Ron Paul Investment Letter, and he wrote me a letter saying, uh, "Call me at this number. I want to talk to you about a mailing for my mailing list." Um, so <clears throat> I put together a, uh, a letter that would go out. It was something like, uh, 
big government is the predator, your unprotected wealth is the prey. And um, it might sound a little bit cheesy now, but this is a, this is a, a real a concern of people 30 years ago as it, as it is even today. Um, and we had the good fortune to mail the, uh, the piece out to Ron's list. I think it had about 10, 12,000 people on it at, at the time. The same week, the Dan Quayle, uh, the former vice president of the United States, uh, had his identity stolen, and it was on the front pages of every newspaper and magazine in the country. Of course, this is before the internet, so people got their news from newspapers and, um, and magazines back then. So we got about a 12% response rate on the first mailing, uh, you know, over a thousand orders. And that really is what launched my career in this, in this space. Um, so that's how I got started. And I built a, a freelance uh, writing uh, career from, uh, uh, from, from Ron for a while. I also did freelance work for a number of other, a uh, number of other clients. And then finally, uh, in the mid '90s, I just launched my own company and, and started doing this full time and, and built a mailing list and so on. I, I dissolved one company and started another one around 1999. Um, I started doing consulting work, and then uh, uh, back in 2003, I decided I really needed to get some academic uh, credentials to uh, to buttress what I was doing, and so I I opted to. I also wanted to live overseas for a few years, and so I sort of combined those two objectives by relocating for three years to Vienna, Austria. Uh, and in Vienna, there is a program at one of the universities in international tax planning taught in English uh, by a, a very well-renowned uh, faculty of people, including some of the top names from the OECD as visiting professors that would come in and talk about why you know, why we need higher taxes and why we need uh, tax cooperation and so on. So there's a lot of indoctrination into a mainstream tax thought, which was really valuable from the sense that it gave me the idea of, of how, I don't want to call them the enemy necessarily, because I don't necessarily think they're the enemy. They're just misguided in some of their beliefs. But it really gave me some insight into the thought processes of, of how this works. And that's really valuable for me when someone comes to me and they, they maybe they have a viewpoint that is shaped, uh, say, by you know, taxes are evil, uh, where there's no authority for the government to collect taxes from me. And, and I can explain why, you know, how this all developed. And, you know, of course, it's their choice if they want to comply or not comply. Of course, if they don't comply, then they can get into big trouble. And we, I've seen this time after time, unfortunately. Um, so, what we've developed now is I, the Nestman Group, which is my company, uh, we really have four primary businesses. We're involved in publishing, consulting, second citizenship and passports, and corporate formation and resident agent services. And um, there's actually another company involved as well. It's called Fortress Trust Company. It's uh, incorporated on the island of Nevis. And I'm the president of that company. So we have the Nesma Group and we have Fortress Trust Company. Now, the Nesma Group is primarily publishing and consulting. So we have a free weekly newsletter. You can sign up for it by going to nestman.com. My name has two N's in it, N-E-S-T-M-A-N-N. -N, and it's called Nesman's Notes. Um, I really couldn't come up with much of a better, uh, a better name than that. Uh, then we have a paid program called the Inner Circle. And, and People pay us a monthly fee, uh, and they receive a weekly alert, which is a an in-depth analysis of, of some topic that uh, that I think is uh, is important. I mean, we just did a uh, two-part analysis of Costa Rica as, as a place to uh, relocate to if you're an American, and, and how to set yourself up in Costa Rica, um, and why someone might want to move to Costa Rica. I mean, one of my clients tells me that uh, as soon as he arrives in Costa Rica. Um, and gets to his uh, vacation uh, home down there, his blood pressure drops by 20 points. I have another client who told me that uh, her, her, um, her life literally was saved, and she was, had stage four cancer, moved to Costa Rica, started eating organic food, and receiving unconventional medical treatments that are not allowed in the United States, and she said she was cured of cancer within six months. So when I heard stories like this, I said, this is a pretty intriguing place. Uh, I really need to learn more about it, and, and we did a two-part series on on Costa Rica you know, very recently. So there's many others. That's just a, that's just an example. 
Wow, so many places I want to take this conversation. Well, first off, I suppose, let me just say, working with Ron Paul, that's amazing. Ron Paul is one of my heroes, so that is just a phenomenal way to start a career. But I guess some of the other things is the newsletter that you do. And I've actually been subscribed to your newsletter for quite some time. Like I read an article today that you published on Julian Assange, and it was so well done and really gave such a breakdown of why we need to be fighting against things like this. And so thank you very much for the work that you do, because I really believe it is important. Well, thank you. You know, Julian is, 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 one, of my, is one of my heroes, as is Ron Paul. I mean, one of, the, uh, one of the rather surreal things that I've done in my career was to write a $50,000 check uh, to Ron's company for profit sharing on, <laughs> on our, our mailings. Um, for my first book, and and uh, that was a real thrill to be able to uh, you know, make money together with Ron. Um, <clears throat> really, just nothing better than that in my career. Absolutely. So today, Mark, I want to kind of dig in with you a little bit about Americans who are living overseas and some of the obligations that they have and some of the opinions that other people might have. So I guess really my first question on that is, like, why do you think that American citizens really have such a negative view of people who leave the country and move overseas, um, either to start a business or to start their life overseas? What do you think about that? Well, the, the U.S. has the world's largest economy. I mean, this, is a, this is a big country. We've got uh, 300 million people, uh, and only 60% of the people who live in America have ever traveled outside of it. So, I mean, there's literally millions of people who have never left the county or the state they live in. So, you know, they have a sort of a narrow view. Again, I don't want to start you know, casting aspersions at these people. I mean, they're good folks, but they just have a pretty narrow outlook. Um, and the many of those who have visited other countries have only traveled, say, to a bordering country like Canada or Mexico. So their exposure to other cultures and other countries is pretty limited. And it's very hard for them to understand why an American would want to work overseas or live overseas. Many of them think it's a tax dodge because the newspapers and, well, it's not the newspapers now, it's the Internet, of course, um, but there are all sorts of articles appearing about how Americans who are working overseas are dodging taxes through a, an incentive program called the Foreign Earned Income Exclusion. So what, that, what this particular provision of the tax code, it's Section 911 of the, of the U.S. tax code, and it gives U.S. citizens working overseas the opportunity to exclude foreign earned income from U.S. tax. Well, people wonder, well, why in the world would you have this? Because now you're not paying taxes to anyone in the U.S. or a foreign country. That's simply not true because uh, you're usually paying tax in the country that you're living in. So uh, what the foreign earned income exclusion does is it allows a U.S. citizen to exclude that income that they probably pay taxes on already from uh, their U.S. income tax. And that brings up another point, which is the United States is really only one of two countries in the world that imposes tax on a worldwide basis to its citizens, no matter where they live. So you know, one of the examples I give in my, in my lectures is that um, a U.S. citizen could be living uh, in a rocket ship uh, orbiting Alpha Centauri four light years away from the United States, four, four light years away from Earth, and still be responsible for paying tax on a worldwide or their universal income um, if they had any up there. So uh, it's crazy. This is a system that we've had over 100 years in the United States. Uh, it is simply not suitable for the modern world, but this is the, you know, this is the world that Americans living and working overseas um, have to realize. And the average American who has maybe never left the county or the state they live in doesn't realize that incentives like this are necessary because of this unique manner of taxation of of U.S. citizens, and this is always seems to be left out of the conversation. Now, as far as negative attitudes toward offshore investing, uh, again, the mainstream media equates investments outside the U.S. with tax evasion. Uh, and a very typical attitude was expressed by someone who should know a lot better, a former, uh, this is a lawyer, a very sophisticated lawyer, um, and a former congressional staffer, he happens to be very left-wing, his name was Jack Bloom, and he said, I think back in 2000, 2001, and this is a word-for-word -word quote, is there is no legitimate reason for a U.S. citizen 
to have an offshore bank account. Now, again, I don't want to condemn Jack. I mean, I'm sure he had his reasons for saying this, but the fact is it's a very questionable conclusion for him to say that, especially for the 9 million Americans living overseas who need a bank account in their adopted countries for the same reasons Americans need them in the U.S. So they need, to, they need a place to put their paycheck, they need a place to pay their utility bills, their insurance premiums, whatever it is. They need to exist in that country just the way Americans need to exist in the United States. And to do that, it's a lot easier if you have a bank account. But even if you don't, even if you're an American not living overseas, you're living in Texas or Iowa or West Virginia, where I grew up or wherever, there are plenty of reasons for U.S. residents to have assets overseas. Uh, among them are currency diversification to you know, invest in some things outside the U.S. dollar. Dollar is a very strong currency, but it's certainly not the only one in the world. Uh, and if it goes down and you have overseas currencies, then uh, you'll have a hedge against that. Um, asset protection is another reason. The United States has more lawyers, I think something like 90% of the world's lawyers, and around 90% of the world's lawsuits. We're a very litigious society. So if you are a successful entrepreneur, especially if you're in a, uh, in a field where you might get sued a lot, as also very common with physicians and other, uh, and other licensed professionals, it makes sense to have some assets stashed overseas just for asset protection. Um, and one reason is, is that this works is that once there's a very highly developed network of asset tracking services that uh, exist to simply track where people have their money in the United States. But once you leave uh, the United States and have your assets overseas, that network operates much less efficiently. Now, notice that I did not say anything about tax savings. Uh, because tax savings is not one of the reasons why people should invest overseas. Now, there are the same, you do have the same incentives that apply overseas uh, in things like individual retirement accounts and 401k accounts, which are types of uh, tax savings mechanisms, very similar, say, to a Canadian RRSP. Um, and I'm sure you're familiar with uh, Mikkel. So you can invest your IRA overseas, you can invest your 401k overseas. If you can find a bank or financial institution willing to uh, accept it, you can buy real estate overseas in a tax shelter plan. But the tax savings is not one of the uh, big reasons to invest overseas. But this is the only focus that the mainstream media has on international investing. So there are regular stories uh, in the media here in the States about the harsh punishment meted out by U.S. courts for U.S. citizens who are caught not reporting their non-U.S. accounts or investments. There's almost never any positive coverage about investing outside the U.S. Well, and that makes sense. They're not going to want capital flight. They're not going to want the dollars going overseas. They're trying to find ways that they're going to be able to tax all the dollars and keep it inside their own economy. Now, it's very, they, they love it if other people come over and bring their dollars and invest in the United States, but they don't seem to want it to... Uh, done the other way, even though a lot of people would argue that the United States is probably the largest tax haven on the planet. Well, I mean, it's, it's, that's just not a conjecture. That's absolutely, that's absolutely the truth. So what, so what you have, Mikkel, is the United States has, has turned into the world's biggest tax haven, and there's no question about the status of it. It's, I mean, literally trillions of dollars uh, coming into the U.S. Uh, where there's no tax, and Congress has, uh, has passed several incentives saying that these particular classifications of income will not be taxed. One of them is investing in U.S. Treasury bills and bonds, uh, which makes sense because, you know, the U.S. has this gargantuan debt and they want foreign people to be able to support that. Uh, and in addition, there is no information exchange or very limited information exchange with the tax authorities of other countries. So while the United States has enacted legislation like the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act called FACTA, which makes it, um, uh, which forces foreign financial institutions to send data back to the United States about U.S. citizens investing there. There's no reciprocity, and in most cases, uh, a foreign citizen of almost every country can invest in the U.S. tax-free, and there's no way that the foreign, that their tax authority in their own country is ever going to get any record of those investments. So, so the U.S. really is the world's biggest tax haven, no question about it. 
So, and what have you seen? Do most Americans that live outside of the United States, are they living in tax havens or how, what do, what's your opinion? No, there's been some, uh, there's been some efforts by U.S. consulates and so on to count the uh, uh, number of people living overseas. There's been some private surveys by uh, groups like American Citizens Abroad. And the consensus is that the vast majority of Americans living overseas reside in countries that have t- actually have higher taxes than the U.S. I mean, taxes are high in the U.S., but they're certainly not as high as they are in some other countries. So let's say uh, Canada is actually the number one destination of Americans living overseas. Well, that makes sense because Canada is right next door to the U.S. and it's an English-speaking country, at least most of it. Uh, you know, familiar customs, uh, more or less, although there are some rather bizarre things I've seen in Canada. I have a brother living up there. And um, so, uh, yeah, there are some differences. I mean, but they're generally fun and it's, you know, the Canadians are really friendly and, but it's a high tax country, no question about it. Certainly higher tax than the U.S. Uh, so there's about a million Americans living in, uh, in, in Canada. It's about a million Americans living in Mexico as well. So they're roughly equal. Now, Mexico is, the taxes aren't as high as Canada, but they're about as high as the U.S. So it certainly isn't a tax haven for Americans either. So Canada taxes uh, its residents on their worldwide income and Mexico taxes residents on their, on their worldwide income. So they're certainly not low tax countries. Um, there's about half a million Americans citizens living in the Philippines. Now this is a little bit different because what happens is a lot of Filipinos will come to live and work in the U.S. Uh, they'll stay long enough to get a U.S. passport and then they'll go back to the Philippines. And they'll have this U.S. passport sort of as, as a, uh, uh, as a uh, insurance policy. But there's also quite a few Americans. Um, what's not really well known is after World War II, uh, the, well, the Philippines was a, you know, was a huge naval base and a huge Air Force base for the United States for many years after World War II. And, and literally tens of thousands of American soldiers and sailors, uh, and, you know, Air Force employees and so on, you know, met Filipino women. Uh, married them, uh, had families there, and stayed. So there's a, you know, there's a really a large number, and uh, some of them are our are, are clients. Lots of American servicemen uh, who met um, people in the Philippines, met women in the Philippines, stayed, had families, and so on. Um, so there's another 300,000 uh, or so Americans living in Germany. Well, Germany is, is we studied the German tax system when I was in Vienna, the German tax system is even more complicated than the American tax system, which is hard to believe, but it's, uh, it's true. Um, and it is, not a, it is not a low tax country. I mean, I have clients in Germany and, and they're paying tax. Uh, last time I checked, I think the highest tax rate of 50% starts in at around $60,000 or 60,000 euros of income annually. The highest tax rate for the United States, which is 37%, uh, doesn't start until you're making well over $300,000 a year. So the, the tax rates are higher and, and they're more progressive than the United States. France, there's another, uh, there's another two or $300,000 in France, a couple hundred thousand dollars in Israel and the United Kingdom and so on. So these people are not, you know, the vast majority of Americans who are living overseas don't live in tax havens. Now there are a few thousand. Um, I think there's something like 6,000 living in the Cayman Islands. Uh, you know, a few thousand living in some of the other parts of the Caribbean. Um, there's a few thousand in Panama. Panama has a what's called a territorial tax system where you're only taxed on income in Panama. So this is very attractive to, uh, to people who aren't subject to, uh, to uh, taxation on a worldwide income uh, if they're, let's say, if you're a non-U.S. citizen. Uh, we also, one of our lines of business, is helping Americans expatriate. So if it's a radical solution, it's not for everyone, but if you're a U.S. citizen and let's say you're living in Panama, maybe you've met a Panamanian woman or a Panamanian man, you've gotten married, you're having a family, you've got a Panamanian passport or maybe you have a passport from one of the countries that we work with for our second citizenship programs, such as St. Kitts and Nevis or the Commonwealth of Dominica. So now you have a, one of these passports plus a U.S. passport, you're living in another country, uh, you're paying taxes in the U.S. as if you never left. Uh, you can actually give up your U.S. citizenship and passport and then just use your non-U.S. passport to, uh, to travel and, and, and so on. 
And it is a radical solution because once you give up your American passport, you're no longer eligible to uh, live or work in the U.S., although you can usually get a visa to come back if you want to visit. So, um, so we've had dozens of clients like this. And I mean, it's really sad that, the, the, I mean, you're a Canadian, Mikkel. You don't have to, you can keep your Canadian passport and not have to pay taxes to Canada living in the Middle East. But if you're an American citizen, you'd be filing tax returns every year. Uh, you probably would not be able to have a retirement plan in the country you live in because it would be, you know, be taxed by Uncle Sam. You probably would uh, you'd probably have trouble getting bank accounts because you're a U.S. citizen and so on. Um, but it's really not a tax dodge for an American living overseas because, again, they're probably paying tax in that country. Well, that's also an interesting point at the end you made there. Have you seen it become very difficult for Americans who are living overseas to get bank accounts? Well, we've seen all sorts of difficulties, uh, Mikkel. I mean, it's, it's, I'm, I mean, I had a, I've had numerous clients come to me and, and say, Mark, you know, I've had this company tell me this. I've had clients who were fired from their jobs. You've had clients who lost their mortgages. We've had clients who lost their bank accounts and so on. Um, but these 9 million Americans living overseas, uh, because they're responsible for paying taxes in the U.S. and also in the country they live in, and there's not always a good match, and well, it's, I'll say that another way, there's usually a mismatch in terms of the way their adopted country taxes their income and the way the United States taxes their income. Um, so you have two sets of obligations tax-wise that you need to deal with if you're living in another country. Now, this doesn't stop with just a personal tax return. Uh, an American living overseas or an American even living in the United States has to adhere to a very complex reporting regime for their bank accounts, securities accounts, and so on. In most cases, contributions to a non-U.S. pension plan are taxed in the U.S. So just as an example, if an American is living in Canada, there is a tax treaty where their contributions to an RRSP plan would not be taxed in the US, but any other type of retirement plan a United States citizen sets up in Canada, is contributions for that are going to be taxable. So, um, and Canada is actually the best case scenario. This is the only, is there, that is the only retirement plan in the world that is not taxed. There's a Canadian RRSP, and, and for those Americans living in Canada with an RRSP, they're okay, but if they have any other type of retirement plan, if they have a superannuation, plan in, uh, in Australia, nope, that's taxable. If they have a, a pension plan in, in the UK, nope, that's taxable. So they really can't set up a retirement plan in their adopted country, which is a huge detriment uh, to them. Uh, even life insurance. We had a really sad case a few years ago. This is, again, an, an American living in Canada, uh, and he bought a life insurance plan and poured a lot of money into it, and this was going to be one of his retirement vehicles. And he found out later to his horror the life insurance company came to him and said, uh, you, need to, uh, uh, you, know, you need to start reporting this life insurance policy as a foreign bank account. And uh, so wow. he came to us and, and we looked into it and found that he owed several hundred thousand dollars in taxes and penalties to the U.S. just because he had this life insurance plan. Is that a tax dodge? Well, I mean, the mainstream media might say that it is. Uh, but you multiply these stories, these individual stories, by 9 million Americans living overseas, and it just turns into a monumental tragedy because violations of these reporting rules and these tax rules are subject to draconian uh, civil and criminal penalties. Uh, it's, really, uh, it's really sad. I mean, another issue is mutual funds. Mutual funds, or every country has mutual funds. Uh, but if you're an American citizen and you buy a mutual fund, there is a, and, and that mutual fund is outside the U.S., there is a whole series of really complex rules that apply, and you can wind up paying um, essentially every dime that you earn in the mutual fund comes out in taxes and penalties. Uh, if you have one of these pension plans I mentioned earlier, you, you're supposed to report it in many cases as a, as a foreign trust. And, and this is a very complicated form. If you don't report as a foreign trust, then you're subject to some really heavy penalties. So um, Congress and the IRS have issued laws and regulations that force any non-U.S. company dealing with Americans to report back to the IRS 
about these types of, of, uh, of investments. So, you know, so there's all sorts of Americans living overseas now who are being subjected to audits uh, for some really very innocent things they've done, like buying life insurance, like enrolling in a pension plan and finding out the owe the U.S. hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars in back taxes. So, you know, the way I summarize it is these Americans living overseas are essentially persona non grata in their adopted countries because of these obligations. Now, the Trump tax reform bill, which lowered taxes, and I think was, you know, was, for me, it's been fantastic. For a lot of people, it's not been so fantastic. Uh, because if you're a U.S. citizen living overseas and you have retained earnings in a foreign corporation, which is a very common way to save in Canada, for instance, um, you know, what a lot of doctors in Canada and so on will set up a, set up a Canadian corporation. And under the Canadian tax rules, there's some tax incentives for doing that. So the set of a foreign corporation, but what happens um, with the ta Trump tax bill is there is a one-time repatriation tax for earnings that an American has in a foreign corporation. And so there's a one-time tax for that, as I think as high as 17% as in some cases. But when the Canadian citizen, let's say, or the Canadian resident, the American living in Canada actually distributes uh, the retained earnings in the Canadian corporation to themselves, they pay a second layer of tax to Canada. And there's no way to recover that tax under the U.S.-Canada tax treaty. So they're essentially paying tax twice on the same income. Well, this is not something that the American media talks about. This is, you know, this is a very common problem, but I mean, we're still accusing Americans living overseas of being uh, tax dodgers. So it's, it's really very unfair, but this is just the way it is. Wow. Well, that is truly a dark picture you paint. So I guess on the opposite side, maybe you can talk to me about why people should look at living overseas then. Just going to take a quick break. Although I do speak Spanish, it is a little rusty. It has been a long time since I lived in Latin America, and I really don't practice much living in the Middle East. Well, this year, my family and I decided to relocate to Panama for the next stage of our expat journey. This will be the eighth country I have lived in as an expat. And to get ready for this move, I decided to start doing some online language learning. And the course I chose to do was from my friend Ollie Richards at I Will Teach You a Language. Ollie has been nice enough to offer listeners of the Expat Money Show $100 off the cover price for his online courses. I am taking his intermediate Spanish course, and my wife and mother are both taking the beginner courses, and we are all loving them. The way he uses stories to teach is fantastic and fun. If you are interested in taking the exact same course me and my family have decided to use to learn Spanish and claim $100 off the cover price, I want you to go to the computer right now and type in expatmoneyshow.com forward slash Spanish. If you would rather learn Italian, go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash Italian or expatmoneyshow.com forward slash French to learn the French course. Okay, back to the interview. Enjoy. Well, there's a lot of opportunities overseas. I mean, one of the, the, the obvious opportunity is the U.S. dollar is, uh, is really a very strong uh, currency right now. It's one of the strongest currencies in the world, maybe the strongest currency in the world. So there's lots of opportunities for Americans to put their dollars into other investments outside the United States that just make a lot of sense because they're cheap in U.S. dollar terms. And uh, I mean, one example, I have a client who, uh, now this is client is actually Canadian, so they don't have the tax complications that, uh, uh, that an American would have. Uh, and now the Canadian dollar isn't as strong as the U.S. dollar, but it's certainly stronger than a lot of currencies. And it's, it's also it's very strong in terms of uh, the Costa Rican currencies. It's actually one of the reasons I got interested in Costa Rica. So uh, this client's niece, uh, and the niece's boyfriend opened a restaurant as uh, just a little beach bar uh, on the Pacific side of Costa Rica. Um, and they opened a beach bar and made the decision to, instead of catering to the locals who didn't really have very much money and were basically living in subsistence fishing and maybe small scale agriculture and so on, 
they thought, let's open a beach bar that caters to the expats living here because there's lots of Americans and Canadians and, and Brits and so on living down there who uh, um, they thought might be clients. So they set up a beach bar and printed the menus in English and started selling imported imported beer and this sort of thing. And they got all the uh, they got all the business they, they can handle. And then even some local you know, Costa Ricans started coming to it. So uh, it was a real success story because they you know they looked at the market and said this is you know we can cater to uh, the expat population down here and we think we can build a successful business. And they did. So if you find an opportunity like that and it can export it, I mean, and, and, and you can use, say, your U.S. dollars or other stolen currency to, you know, to do the development, you know, that's a really great way to leverage um, some opportunities. Another great, another real opportunity is real estate. Um, Columbia uh, is an example. The uh, Colombian real estate market is red hot right now, but the Colombian currency is very weak. So a, an American can come down there and purchase property at very reasonable prices in U.S. dollar terms. Uh, I mean, I've had some clients who have been down in uh, Medellin, which is probably one of the more popular choices. Medellin is a, uh, it's, Columbia's right, is very close to the equator, but Medellin is up around, I think, six, 7,000 feet. So it actually has a very temperate, very pleasant climate. Uh, and you can buy property in Medellin and generate annual returns of 8% or more if you shop around. Now, there are definitely some traps to avoid, though, and this is true really of any nationality uh, when you buy overseas real estate. And the most frequent one I've encountered in these Spanish-speaking countries, um, which have a system of law called civil law instead of common law, which is what you and I would be familiar with is because both of you know, Canada, the Canadian legal system and the U.S. legal system are both based um, at least you know, at the outset on the legal system of, of England. And so we call that common law. And there's a very different system of ownership of land and property in civil law, which is the, say, Napoleonic law and French law and so on, and the descendants of that law. Um, so these Spanish countries have civil law. There's actually four different levels of property ownership. So you have you know, the, the ground itself, uh, the, the rights to build on that ground, then the owner, then the third level of ownership would be the ownership of the structure erected on the ground, and the fourth level of ownership would be the right to occupy uh, that building. Uh, and so you have to be sure that, all, that you know who has the rights to all four of those levels of ownership. And often the person selling you a property is only selling you the right to occupy a building on that property. Uh, and so the person who owns the ground decides he wants to put something else on that property can literally force you to uh, force you out if you don't have the contract drafted properly. So you really have to be very careful uh, that you have good title uh, to the different levels of property or the, you know, these four different types of, of property ownership that you have. In many cases, you don't. Now, well, sometimes there's, there's outright scams. I had one client who was offered uh, a farm uh, in Chile, what they call a finca in, 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 uh, uh, in Spanish, uh, by a seller who said he wouldn't be able to turn over title until after closing. So my client actually hired an attorney, and they went to the closing, uh, and both the seller's attorney and my client's attorney said, go ahead and sign on the dotted line. It's okay to get the title afterwards. Well, my client had the good sense to walk away. Well, it turned out that both the seller's attorney and my client's attorney were in cahoots at trying to rip off my client. Um, now, I don't want to say this is typical, but this is, you know, this is something that you come across. There's a lot of real estate scams. You want to hire an independent attorney. You do not want to use your you don't want to use a seller's attorney, and you do not want to use an attorney the seller recommends. You want to do your own due diligence and hire your own attorney to make sure you're getting a good title to the property. Um, I mean, the other issue that you see a lot is what we call the uh, paying the gringo price. So this is uh, so if you're a you know if you're a, a white-skinned American or Canadian or Brit or whatever, and and you're speaking English and you don't speak Spanish. Uh, and you go out and try to buy real estate, you're going to be offered real estate at a much higher premium than a local would have. So what I always advise people is get down there, put some boots on the ground, 
uh, try to learn some Spanish. If you don't speak Spanish well enough to go shopping on your own, then hire an attorney or hire someone to go look at properties on your behalf, scout things out and, uh, you know, try to get, you know, try to get different people to give you different evaluations of the same properties that you're interested in. And eventually, if you're lucky, you'll come to a price that is the same price or at least a similar price to what a local uh, might pay for it. So, so these are, you know, these are two of the common issues that we see when, uh, when Americans are buying real estate or pretty much really any, any other asset in, in foreign countries. Probably the biggest problem I've seen, and this is a uniquely American problem because of our tax laws, uh, but a lot of, there's a, a lot of uh, promotion and you'll see this in the, in the big and uh, the most popular newsletters that are out there for uh, American expats. Uh, and they're all say, we have this great investment and you can buy it with your retirement plan, what we call an individual retirement account or an IRA. So, I mean, this actually happened to one of my clients uh, and it was, a, it was very sad actually, but uh, I'll call the guy Jeff and Jeff, uh, buys a, a piece of property in Ecuador for a hundred thousand. He takes title or he buys it through his IRA. Um, and the Ecuador rules say, well, you can't buy the property directly in your IRA, but you can buy it in a Ecuador corporation, your IRA owns. So that's what he did. He formed a, he hired an attorney in Ecuador, uh, the attorney formed an Ecuador corporation, uh, and they bought the property in the IRA. Well, this is just raw land. It was, it was several hundred acres of raw land and uh, apparently it was very beautiful, it had water running through it, had waterfalls. It was just absolutely enchanting property. Uh, but he wanted to build on it, but he couldn't find a Canadian, or not a Canadian, he could not find a bank in Ecuador willing to open an account for the company that he had set up. And without a local account, he had no way to pay local contractors to construct the buildings he wanted to build on this property. So he eventually opened an account in his personal name and funded it with money from his uh, individual retirement account. But the IRS considers that a distribution. So he had to pay tax on, on that $200,000. Um, and I mean, this, uh, this is just an example of, of a little trap that people had because of the practical difficulties of operating overseas. So what, what you need to do is, is, and I tell people this all the time, uh, people go, they love, people love to form these entities uh, in other countries. And this is just as an Americans, it's true of any nationality. But what you need to do before you create an entity, before you purchase property, you need to confirm that you can open a bank account to make improvements to the property, that you can uh, do whatever you need to do in order to set up the ingredients to improve it or whatever it is you want to do with it before you buy it. And if you can't do that, then you need to walk away on Nevis to do it for less money, and then they'll come back to us and say, well, you know, now we need an operating agreement for our company because, you know, the bank wants to see the operating agreement or they want to see this or they want to see that, and the company that they were dealing with doesn't offer that service. So, yeah, I've, I've been there, Mikhail. I know exactly what you're saying. Okay, so you've highlighted some real estate and, you know, bars and things like that, but those are normal things that we would have in, say, Canada and the United States. Talk to me about some of the unique opportunities that people have for investing or for building businesses overseas. You know, I, this is uh, there's there's lots of things people can do. I mean, one of the one of the easiest things, and you and I have that skill. So does any native English speakers. There's a tremendous demand overseas for instruction in English for a young person who is looking. In fact, I've been I have a I have a nephew who is a uh, uh, 22 years old, uh, just got out of uh, university and sort of looking around for what can I do next. Um, and, you know, I told him, you know, what, you should consider teaching English overseas. It's going to give you a whole new perspective. It really doesn't matter what country you go to. There's lots of listings for doing this. You need to, you need to get certified as it's called a, uh, there's a certification process. There's actually a couple different companies that do this. You get certified as an English teacher, and then you can go abroad and teach English in another country. And to me, this is a fantastic way of getting established in another country because it's leveraging a skill that you already have that you don't even think about as being a native English speaker. And these folks are, are really in demand. So the pay isn't great, but it's an opportunity that's available to anybody who is a native English speaker. Uh, now, there are age limitations in a lot of countries. 
Um, if you're young, as say under under 30, it's easiest. If you're even, but even if you're not, if you're 65 or over, uh, there are some countries you can do this as well. So this is a, I, this is one opportunity that I've uh, I especially talk about to young people as being able to uh, to do something which is uh, which is rather unique. I mean another another opportunity which is open to professionals uh, is doing expat. Um, Accounting. So, if you are a if you're a U.S. lawyer or a U.S. Uh, accountant, and you have your, let's you know, say, you have your license to practice law or your license to to be a, a certified public accountant, uh, and you want to live in another country, you're not necessarily just tied to the U.S. Because, and I know a lot of people who do this. I mean, let's say you have a boyfriend or girlfriend from uh, Switzerland, and you want to live in and you want to live in Switzerland. Well, you can get residence there if you're married to a Swiss uh, a Swiss citizen. Uh, and you just set up your you set up your shingle and you start doing taxes or practicing law uh, for Americans living in that country. And you can do the same thing, really, as a I suppose as a as a Canadian accountant or uh, or any other nationality where you have a a lot of people living outside that country. Um, although the, I think the the opportunity to do that is probably greater for Americans because of this worldwide taxation situation. So those are a couple other opportunities that that uh, that. I've seen people take advantage of in, in numerous circumstances. Well, I've definitely seen a lot of that in Abu Dhabi and Dubai. You can go to a law firm and it will be a British law firm in Dubai or it will be an, a Canadian tax office in Abu Dhabi. You know, things like that happen all the time. And, and you're right. Those are really fantastic opportunities because you get to join something that you know and understand then have a bit of an expat adventure at the same time and often charge a premium because you're really talking about specialized services because you'll be doing this for expats. So taxes for expats is just another layer that you're able to add to it. That's absolutely true. I mean, uh, I mean another opportunity, and this I didn't, had never even thought of this um, until very recently, but when I was young, uh, right out of college, I took the uh, American Civil Service exam and, and there were two things I was interested in: either going to work for uh, the State Department uh, and you know getting on as a uh, you know, as a junior ambassador somewhere, or uh, the other thing I wanted to do is to get to work for the Environmental Protection Agency. Well, I, back then I was you know, gung ho, a, a pretty you know, pretty enthusiastic leftist, and as before I had read Atlas Shrugged, which uh, sort of <laughs> converted me into a libertarian. Now that changed a lot of people's lives. Absolutely, it uh, it sure did mine. But uh, but anyway, I had a client a few years ago who uh, who did that. He actually became a diplomat and went all over the world. And so if you're you know and if you speak some foreign languages and uh, and are young, I mean, there's some there's worse things to do than to get on with the with the State Department and um, you know get stationed in other countries and start learning different cultures and then. You know, there's a very generous pension scheme for uh, for U.S. Uh, former U.S. government employees, uh, so you can retire. I think around age 40 or so, you get a you get a, I think a pension after 20 years, um, and then you go back to your adopted country and set up a based on your observations or your experiences there, you can set up some kind of a business or some sort of consulting practice. So I have a client who actually did this, uh, and he's been very successful at it. Brilliant. So. You know what? One of the questions that I've always had in my mind about Americans and, and, and specifically about the taxes is like, I know that there's more than 9 million Americans living overseas, but you know, I've heard some reports that say that there's less than something like 500,000 that actually file a tax return every year. So I guess I want to understand, are these people tax avoiding? Is this evasion? What's your opinion on this? Well, again, because most of the so, there, so you have nine million Americans living overseas. You have five hundred thousand of them filing tax returns. You have eight and a half million of them who don't file tax returns. And this is you know from the IRS. And so the conclusion the IRS has is that the conclusion from the IRS is that these eight and a half million Americans are are tax evaders. Well, that's not really true because as we talked earlier, I mean most of these Americans are living in countries like Canada and Mexico and Germany and France and the UK and so on, which actually have higher tax rates than the US do. So they're paying taxes to their own countries. They're paying taxes to the Inland Revenue Service or, or what have you um, in the UK. And, and 
Uh, if they're not filing tax returns in the U.S., it's usually not because they owe any taxes. It's just because they didn't realize they had to file a U.S. tax return as well. Because again, the U.S. tax system is such a unique uh, is so unique that if they talk to the locals in say Britain or Canada or so on, the locals aren't going to have any idea that the American, just because of the passport they carry, is subject to an entire entirely uh, new and, and second layer of taxation. So you know, these folks aren't, uh, you know, aren't tax evaders at all. Now, we have, a, we have a consultation program here at the Nesman Group called Private Wealth, where we put together an in-depth report for a client based on their personal circumstances with recommendations as, as to what to do next. So one of our Private Wealth clients came to us about a year ago from Canada. Um, and this individual had lived in Canada for over 30 years, like so many others. Uh, she had uh, married a Canadian guy, and, and they'd settled down in Canada. Had you know, They actually had adult children. She had been there for so long. And so Canada was her adopted country. And so she had set up Canadian retirement accounts. She had Canadian life insurance policies and so on. So she filed a... Um, she enrolled in one of these programs the IRS periodically trots out to help Americans with uh, delinquent tax obligations uh, and found out that while she didn't owe the IRS any money in taxes for her income in Canada, she did owe tax on the value of the <clears throat> contributions to the, to the pension plan, uh, the contributions to the life insurance policy, and so on. And she also had not... Uh, reported any of these investments as foreign accounts or foreign trusts. So um, now when she approached us, she thought her accountant had told her, you're going to need to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars of, of, of penalties. But again, none of the penalties were tax related, or at least for the income and the, for the salary income. They're all for uh, really esoteric things like the you know, contributions, the pension contributions to the life insurance and, and, and the fact that she had not reported her Canadian bank accounts as a foreign account. Well, to her, she's living in Canada. Her Canadian bank account at you know, Toronto Dominion down the street is not a foreign account. I mean, that's the bank down the street, right? So, but from an American standpoint, that's a foreign account and you're supposed to, uh, and you're supposed to uh, pay on it. Well, she was able to get some of these penalties reduced by enrolling in a program that the IRS uh, called uh, the Offshore Voluntary Disclosure Initiative. And it operated for about 10 years, and in that time, the IRS boasted it collected more than $10 billion from U.S. taxpayers. Um, and its press releases, it made it sound like these taxpayers were evading American taxes. But the fact is that most of the money that came in were for people like my client uh, who were not evading taxes or living in a high-tax country like Canada. Uh, and the money was coming in from penalties over the reporting obligations, you know, over the contributions to things like you know, pension plans and life insurance and so on. I suspect that now we've had several hundred clients over the years uh, who, you know, Americans living overseas, and they really have told me the same thing. Um, they don't owe U.S. tax, uh, but maybe they have U.S. filing obligations because they didn't realize they had to report all this stuff. And I think that's really the case with most of these eight and a half million Americans who don't file tax returns. They're not going to really owe any tax in the United States for the money that for their earned income or money in their bank accounts. But they will need to pay some penalties uh, because they did not report their foreign accounts or maybe they got involved in uh, a mutual fund, a pension plan or something like this and didn't realize there's a very different tax treatment for that in the U.S. than there would be, say, in their adopted country. So I guess then what options do people have if they are in a situation like this, if they want to become tax compliant, if they, if they know that they haven't been filing their tax return over a number of years? What options do they have? Well, Mikhail, if, if an American has unreported non-U.S. accounts that have generated tax income, um, and if you can prove, the American can prove that the failure to pay uh, the required, to pay the taxes and file the re required forms was non-willful. In other words, you did not willfully fail to file these forms or pay this tax. Uh, you, may file, you, you may qualify for a program called the uh, Simplified Filing Compliance Program. Um, 
And if you apply for that and can, you have to write a statement saying my conduct was non-willful and here's proof that it was non-willful. And if you can do that, you'll eliminate all the penalties. Uh, you'll still have to pay the tax, but you'll eliminate all the penalties. And the penalties sometimes can you know, outweigh the tax by a factor of 10, 15, or, uh, or even more, um, you know, which is huge. So that's a, you know, that's a big advantage. Now you have to file all the delinquent reporting forms. That's gonna cost you some money for the previous three years. Uh, and pay any tax and interest due on this non-U.S. income for this three-year period. Now, if you lived outside the U.S. <clears throat> for the entire three-year period that you have to go back and file these forms for, there are no penalties. So that is a you know. So this is really the program I recommend most expats get into because they can also often prove that they really didn't know anything about this. And if, and if you can get a letter from your accountant saying I didn't realize that you know, this American client had all these obligations, that's even better because that's pretty much, if you rely on professional advice and can prove you relied on professional advice, then that's definitely non-willful. Um, if you live in the United States uh, and can demonstrate this burden of proof, then there's a 5% penalty that should pay on the highest aggregate balance of your non-US accounts for the three preceding years. But again, proving non-willfulness is difficult. Uh, you need to make a sworn, what they call a statement of reasonable cause declaration under oath and threat of perjury, explaining why your failure to disclose and pay tax on the income was non-willful. And really, the only situation you can rely on to do this is if you have a written letter from somebody, uh, like a, say, a tax professional, saying the income is non-taxable and non-reportable. If you simply say, I didn't know, um, that probably won't work. So if you have unreported foreign accounts, you need to acknowledge, uh, but don't owe any tax. There's a couple initiatives you can, you can follow. One is called the Delinquent FBAR Submission Procedures. FBAR stands for Foreign Bank Account Report. This is an annual form that people need to file if they have uh, non-US accounts with an aggregate value of $10,000 or more, not a lot of money. Um, if you're living in the you're living in a foreign country and even moderately successful, you'll probably have bank accounts that far exceed that amount. Uh, but there's an annual obligation to file this, uh, this FBAR form. So there is a procedure to uh, file delinquent forms, and if it's non-willful, you have to make this declaration of non-willfulness, just as, as I said earlier, then you can uh, avoid uh, tax obligations. If you have other information returns you didn't file but don't owe any tax, there's a separate initiative called the Delinquent International Information Return Submission Procedures uh, that you can uh, take advantage of. And to do this, you need to file an amended tax return uh, for three years to include the missing information returns along with, again, a statement of reasonable cause explaining why you didn't file the return. And if the IRS accepts your explanation, then there's no penalty for that. So there are some ways to get, get clean with this, uh, but they all prove that you acted non-willfully to, uh, uh, to, uh, to do this. And this can be, you know, this can be a difficult burden to establish. That's super interesting. Well, and anyone who's been on my newsletter for a while knows that some of my favorite stories are the Americans that I meet overseas and the reasons that they tell me that they don't have to file a tax return. So <laughs> like I get all kinds of really creative things. I've had someone recently who told me that they don't make more than $40,000 a year, so therefore they don't need to file. And I was asking them about their company, and they told me that their company actually provided their housing for them, which was something like another twenty dollars or $25,000. I don't know where they got the $40,000 from. Um, I've had other people who tell me that they spoke to someone at the embassy, and the embassy said, no, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. Um, all kinds of really interesting ways. So I guess... Set the record straight. If you were an American and you were living overseas, what are the requirements that you must file a tax return? So, Mikhail, if um, that's very interesting that people have been telling you these stories uh, and creative stories about not being Americans and not needing to pay tax. I've actually heard the same thing that um, when I was living in Vienna, I actually spoke to an American who told me that uh, one of the people at the U.S. Embassy had advice they don't need to file a tax return. And, in the, so that's just simply, that's simply wrong. So the filing requirements really are the same uh, as they are in the U.S. with a twist. So I don't know, remember the exact thresholds, but it's something like uh, if you're single, uh, in other words, you're not married, 
and you're filing what, what they call an individual a tax return, I believe the filing threshold where you have to do this is something like $10,000 annually. So if you're making more than $10,000, no matter where you live, and again, I'm not sure the precise number, but somewhere around there, you're supposed to file a, an annual uh, tax return at the IRS. Um, now, if you're living overseas, you do have an opportunity via a program called the Foreign Earned Income Exclusion to exclude, and again, I don't remember the precise amounts, but something like $104,000 a year of earned income uh, from any U.S. tax obligations. So you'll still pay tax in whatever foreign country you're living in, but the first $104,000 of that will not be subject to U.S. tax. Uh, and then anything above that, you can take advantage of something called the foreign tax credit, and then the tax you pay in that foreign country can be credited against the uh, your U.S. tax obligations. So this is why, in most cases, Americans living overseas will not owe any tax to the IRS on their earned income if they are uh, filing tax returns annually. Um, so this guy telling you that there's a forty thousand um, dollar exemption. I mean, he's right in the sense that if he files a tax return and the $40,000 is, is earned income, then yeah, he could exclude all of that from any U.S. tax obligations. But to get that exclusion, he's got to file a tax return. And then there's a, an attachment called Form 2555, which you'd have to file you know, to get the, uh, uh, to take advantage of this foreign earned, in, foreign earned income exclusion. Well, the foreign earned income exclusion is something that I think is quite common. A lot of people know about this one, but maybe just break down the, the foreign tax credit for a, me a little bit, because a lot of people kind of miss this one, or maybe it's not talked about as much. Sure. So let's give an example. I mean, even the way that most Americans find out about the foreign tax credit is if they invest overseas. So for instance, I used to own a lot of uh, Canadian you know, back during the uh, when oil was $150 a, a barrel a few years ago, the, a lot of the Canadian oil producers are paying dividends of 12, 13%. And of course, it's in Canadian dollars, it's, it's, a nice, it's a nice yield. So I started buying up uh, what they, these Canadian uh, oil trusts that were generating these amazing returns. Um, but there was a 15% withholding tax. Uh, that Canada was imposing against my my income. So I talked to my accountant. And he said, well, that's you can get that back. And I just file a, the, the form, and I forget the number of the form, but it's a foreign tax credit form, with your tax return. And the 15% you pay Canada is going to be credited against the the 15% or whatever it was you'd be paying in the U.S. So the same principle applies if you have taxes on your earned income. Um, and if... if if you're making more money uh, than the, uh, or let's say that if you're living in a high tax country and the foreign earned income exclusion really won't do much for you, then instead of, of that, you just go ahead and file this form and say, I paid X thousand uh, dollars to Germany or X thousand dollars to Canada or what have you, and please credit the money I paid to the one of these countries against my U.S. income tax obligation. So that's how it works out. That's Conceptually, pretty simple. I mean, there's all sorts of limitations and, and this sort of thing on this, but conceptually, it's pretty simple. You know, in practice, you'll want to have a, an accountant who understands his way around the tax code uh, put this together for you. Brilliant. I love it, Mark. Super interesting conversation today, and I've learned a bunch of things myself. If my listeners want to reach out to you, if they want to learn more about what you do, where can we send them? You know, the best way to do it is just go to my website, uh, nestman.com. Uh, my name is uh, N as in Nicholas, E-S-T, M as in Michael, A-N-N, two N's as in Nicholas at the end, uh, dot com. Uh, or just Google my name, Mark Nestman, and, and um, how to find out more about us. You can sign up for our free letter, Nestman's Notes. Uh, if you want to talk to me, uh, we have all sorts of different consultation programs available. Uh, if you just have a simple question, uh, you know, feel free to reach out to us. If it's not too complicated, I won't charge you for it. If it is, I'll suggest that, uh, uh, that we talk and set up a consultation. So great to meet you, and Mikkel, and thank you for this opportunity to uh, connect to your audience. Thank you so much for being a guest, and we'll talk soon. Okay, Mark? Okay, take care. To learn Spanish the same way my family and I are doing it, go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash Spanish and claim your $100 off the cover price. 
Ollie Richards' teaching methods are fun and enjoyable, and an hour of study goes by in no time flat. We are making great progress and loving the experience. So, if you are an expat, or you want to be an expat, and your language skills are not as good as they could be, I suggest you go and check out the work that Ollie Richards does. As a listener of the Expat Money Show, you get $100 off the cover price for his beginner courses. For Spanish, go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash Spanish. For Italian, go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash Italian. And for French, go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash French. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.